navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome everybody to the start of a new series. Before we begin, uh, I want to thank you for coming back for another series and for another CLE with the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers. If you are not yet a member, many of you may not be because uh, these are free and for everybody and people listen to the podcast. You don't even have to be a lawyer uh, to listen to the podcast. So uh, I would encourage you to join the Academy. If you haven't done so already, just by watching today and registering, you're already going to get $50 off. It's not expensive. It gives you so much more access to valuable information to help you as a lawyer and help you in your practice, like on-demand CLEs, access to special events, and uh, I encourage you to do so, especially if you're getting good value out of all of the CLEs that you've been attending. So let's talk about this new series that I'm very excited to uh, present to you. This series is entitled how to litigate a catastrophic automobile accident injury case. I know it's a mouthful, but the idea is to start focusing in. I'm going to be doing a bunch of series in the years ahead and uh, hopefully continue to share lots of what I think is helpful information with you. And most of you probably have already listened to the first series I did last year on how to litigate a personal injury case. We just completed a series on trial skills and now we're going to start getting into specific subject matters of cases in these series. So I thought the proper one to kick all this off would be on automobile accidents, uh, because that is probably the biggest area that most people who will take on, uh, most lawyers who will take on a personal injury case would take on. It's probably an automobile accident, maybe a premises case as well, but automobile accidents are something that most lawyers feel generally comfortable in handling. That is until they get to a catastrophic automobile accident, which requires a lot more work, uh, a lot more knowledge, uh, and a lot more time. So I thought that we could focus on what makes a catastrophic automobile accident case unique. And I would like to share with you throughout this series, as I've been doing all along my playbook, my cases, how I've approached these to try and maximize uh, the, the, the expectation of winning them uh, and establishing liability, as well as to maximize recovery uh, by way of either a jury award or a settlement. So we are going to do a six-part uh, series where we'll go through different areas. And today, I'm going to talk with you about one of the most pivotal parts of uh, how to litigate a catastrophic automobile accident injury case, and that's the investigation. That is the very start when you get that call, when you get the client saying, uh, telling you that uh, their case or a family member of theirs or a friend of theirs, somebody was involved in a horrific uh, automobile accident and they need your help. And when you get that call or you get that client, you need to get going on the case immediately. As always, you want to get started on any case immediately, uh, but especially in a, a case with potential large damages, potential life-altering injuries where your client or your client's family uh, is going to need every resource that you can get for them uh, to move on with their life. Uh, you really need to build the foundation of the case from the outset. It's just like a house. You have to have a strong foundation to build a big house. 
you're building a, a, you know, a card tower, you need to have the solid cards at the base. So if you want to be fortunate enough to have a really good case when it comes time to resolve it or to bring it to trial, it all starts at the beginning with the foundation to establish it. So what is a catastrophic injury? I know there's a lot of technical definitions and dictionaries, medical associations, legal associations. I'm going to tell you my definition of a catastrophic injury and, and what I want to cover in this case, uh, in this course, rather. And, um, you know, when a case comes into my firm, when we look at it, how we work it up like a catastrophic injury case. Catastrophic injuries include spinal fractures, um, paralysis, uh, quadriplegia, paraplegia, loss of limbs, uh, disfiguring injuries, whether it's from a, a fire or trauma uh, that dis, you know disfigures someone's face or their body uh, with scarring all over. Um, then you have death, someone that dies as a result of their injuries. That's catastrophic. Some people will uh, not die right away and their injuries are so horrific they end up dying. So these are all examples of a catastrophic injury. And what separates catastrophic injury cases from other injury cases is that the, the injuries are so catastrophic, so bad, that the injury is equally as bad. The pain and suffering is worse. The medical bills, the future care that's going to be needed in a catastrophic injury can be uh, multi-million dollars worth of, in expenses. There's usually a lost earning component, which can also be uh, a tremendous amount as far as loss in income to an individual, to an individual's family. And so when you have a case where someone's life has been altered, uh, you are going to need to figure out every possible way that you can find a tortfeasor who has enough insurance coverage to compensate um, your client or your client's family uh, to give them what they need uh, to go on with their life. So there's a lot of different ways that someone could be catastrophically injured in an automobile accident. And when I talk about an automobile accident for this series, it's basically any uh, motorized vehicle on the roadway that causes a catastrophic injury. So we're talking cars, vans, buses, pickup trucks, uh, commercial vehicles, commercial trucks, uh, tractor trailers, the big rigs, uh, anything that's operated on the road, motorcycles. And it doesn't have to be two vehicles involved. It could be one of these vehicles striking a cyclist or striking a pedestrian. Uh, these all come under the category of a catastrophic automobile accident. And when you are presented with a case where it involves automotive injuries that are catastrophic, immediately you need to size up, all right, who's at fault who are the potential tortfeasors? Who's got insurance coverage? Because as many of you know, just because someone has a devastating catastrophic injury, and just because you can establish that somebody was at fault in causing that injury, it doesn't mean there's enough compensation available uh, or somewhere to get that money from uh, to properly compensate your client. I have had the unfortunate um, displeasure of having to explain to paralyzed clients who were passengers in a one-car vehicle that the driver was negligent and goes off the road and crashes into a tree uh, that has what in New York State is the minimum insurance required at $25,000. And there's no problem establishing fault. The client's been paralyzed in that accident, catastrophic injury with future care needs and expenses. 
And they look at me and they say, well, you know, where, you know, how come I'm not going to get lots of money to compensate me? They were at fault. I'm paralyzed. How am I going to support my family? How am I going to pay my bills? What am I going to do? And I have to explain to them that, you know, you can't get money just from uh, some non-existent fund that exists. There has to be insurance. There has to be assets. There has to be someone responsible who can afford to compensate you. And in this case, that's it. You have an unemployed person with a minimum insurance policy. $25,000 is it. And it's tragic, but that's the reality. So when you're presented with a case, you need to explore, are there any other areas of liability? Are there any other tortfeasors involved where there might be other insurance? Where else can we find uh, some basis to get the money from that our client is going to need? That's what the foundation uh, is all about, is looking into that. That's what we're going to talk about now. So the first thing that you want to do is you want to explore in an automobile accident insurance coverage. Who's potentially at fault? Who potentially has insurance coverage? Now, in a classic two-car accident, um, let's say your client is in uh, one vehicle, maybe driving one vehicle, and gets in a bad accident with another vehicle. You're going to look at the uh, insurance company for the offending vehicle. Uh, and that's going to be the operator of that vehicle and the registered owner. In most jurisdictions, and certainly in New York State, uh, the law will hold the registered owner of a vehicle uh, liable for the actions and negligence of the operator of the vehicle if they're two different people. And as long as the operator is driving that vehicle with the registered owner's consent. So you want to make sure that you explore the insurance coverage of the owner and operator of the offending vehicle. You wanna make sure that you exhaust the possibility of excess coverage or umbrella coverage or any coverage. So you look into that. And when you get the case, you may not know it immediately, but there are certain cues. You look at the car. Is it a late model 2022 uh, Mercedes-Benz or is it a 2005 Toyota Corolla? All right, these, there's going to be certain indicators as to whether or not you think there's going to be coverage before you look uh, into it and send out the letters and actually get the answers to that. Is it a private vehicle involved in the accident who the, operated by the torque feeser as opposed to a commercial vehicle? Is it Mrs. Smith from the Bronx or is it a Federal Express truck or is it a Pepsi Cola tractor trailer? Um, again, depending on who you identify as the tortfeasor, tortfeasors in their vehicles, um, may make a difference on whether or not there's going to be adequate coverage uh, to compensate your client's catastrophic injuries. Then after you explore whether it's one car, two car, three or four that may be uh, involved in the accident or potentially responsible, then you want to check with your client and the vehicle your client was in or if your client was on a bicycle, or if your client was a pedestrian, you want to look into whether or not they have their own supplemental underinsured or uninsured motorist coverage. We all know this as SUM coverage. I gave a CLE on SUM uh, with the Academy, I think it was last year, and that's on demand. So if you remember, you can get it. And uh, it should be on my podcast as well at thementoresq.com. And I get into details with what that is. But in essence, uh, some people will have insurance that they take out that's known as SUM coverage, which will provide them with insurance uh, if their level of coverage is greater than the offending tortfeasors. Okay, so you want to explore whether or not there's potential SUM coverage. 
And if you do all of that and you say, wow, it looks like a two car accident. There's really no SUM coverage in play. The offending vehicle looks like they're a private entity with minimum insurance coverage. What are we going to do? This, this young person has been paralyzed. This person lost a limb. They're going to need resources. Uh, they have bills to pay. What are we going to do? That's when you need to look for other potential tortfeasors involved in a catastrophic automobile accident case. And oftentimes there are others and you just need to think about it and you need to explore it. And I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, when my office uh, gets involved in a case with a catastrophic injury of what we will explore, what we'll look at, because it's our job as an advocate, as an attorney for the injured party to do that. You must look and explore all avenues uh, to get them just recovering compensation uh, to help them in their lives moving forward. So a couple of things that you're going to want to look at in an automobile accident. You're going to want to see maybe there was a roadway design issue. Maybe there was a sharp curve without a warning. Uh, maybe there was a, a huge defect in the roadway that caused the vehicles to go off. Maybe there wasn't a guardrail where there should have been one. Maybe there was a guardrail involved that pierced through the car and caused an injury during this accident or after the car is impacted. Uh, so roadway design is something you want to look into. My father, Guy Smiley, when I was still in college, um, handled a case that went up to the Court of Appeals called Nowlin, N-A-W-L-I-N, versus the City of New York. And in that case, uh, the, my father, again, was approached uh, by a young woman, a ballerina, who was paralyzed in an automobile accident. And it's a well-known case. It turned out that the operator of the vehicle was a famous Yankees baseball player at the time named Andre Robertson. And they had just left, I think, Studio 54. Uh, they were out together as friends, and Andre was driving down the West Side Highway, uh, was going uh, too fast, lost control in what was a, a windy curve known as a reverse S-curve. The car flipped and this beautiful ballerina client of ours was tragically paralyzed. And amazingly, he didn't have assets at the time. He was on the other side of his uh, good times as an athlete and he had a minimum uh, policy on his car. So there was enough insurance coverage. And my father, uh, being the excellent attorney he is, dug deep and ultimately was able to establish that there was a roadway design on the West Side Highway and that they failed to place the sign warning of the upcoming curve uh, several hundred feet in advance of the curve. Instead, they put it right at the mouth of the curve by accident. They read the plans wrong and he, he dug through and he did his homework, did the type of investigation that you need to do that I'm here to talk to you about to build the case and ultimately get a, a multi-million dollar verdict against the city of New York that was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. So you need to look in, was there a roadway design? Okay, because that's where you can ultimately get uh, coverage or compensation or a defendant that has the capacity to compensate your client for their injuries. Other things can happen in automobile accidents. If it's on a street, we've had cases where there's a big tree hanging over a stop sign. So someone blows the stop sign and, and, and takes your client out and causes the catastrophic injury. But it turns out that there was a tree blocking the sign. And everyone in the, in the neighborhood has been notifying their town or the city about the tree and they didn't prune it and they should have pruned it. So that's an example. You want to explore whether the, the roadway, was it icy? Was it snow? Did they salt it? Did they warn about it? There's, you really need to find out every factor involved in this accident and explore potential theories and look into them. Sometimes there may be nothing, but you have to look into it. 
Other things that you always want to consider is a dram shop case when there's an automobile accident resulting in a catastrophic injury. The dram shop laws, and there are many throughout the United States, in New York, it's a general obligations law 11-101, and that is the dram shop law. And what that refers to is whether or not a retail establishment can be held liable when someone gets drunk at their establishment and goes and causes an injury and injures someone else. And under the law, if you can establish certain things under the, the Dram Shop Acts or statutes in your jurisdiction or in New York, um, then you can hold that facility if they improperly and illegally served alcohol, uh, either serving it to a minor or they overserved somebody that was visibly intoxicated. And then that person gets behind the wheel and injures someone else catastrophically. If you can prove that, then that establishment, whether it's a restaurant, a bar, or the place that sold alcohol. You can also make that argument uh, under a different theory of GOL 11-100 against a private entity, a party at their home. But if they get somebody drunk, and they shouldn't have, and that person uh, kills or injures somebody catastrophically, then they are obligated. So you want to look into a dram shop case whenever there's any hint that there may have been alcohol involvement. That's something that you want to look into. Okay, because that's where you can get coverage where none may exist. There's lots of areas that you can explore for other tort feasors and other insurance coverage. You want to look into product liability accidents. Uh, did the airbags go off? Uh, was there a problem with the with with the vehicle? Uh, was there a recall? Did the accelerator get stuck to the floor? Did the gear shift not work? Was there a brake problem? Uh, did a tire explode? Uh, so you want to look into whether or not it's a product liability case that ultimately was the cause of your client's injuries or a proximate cause. We've also had cases of improper maintenance. You want to see if the vehicles involved were properly maintained. We've actually had cases where a car leaves a repair shop because it needed a new tire or they put winter tires on and the repair shop failed to properly mount the tire and the tire comes off on the roadway, causes a horrific accident. And then you can uh, bring in that repair company as a potential torque feeser in the case. So you have to explore all possible avenues. And the way that you find out whether these are viable avenues is by your initial investigation into the case. And Michelle, I'll let you take the first break now before we move on to that. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD242. Again, that's POD as in podcast 242. Thanks, Michelle. Um, so I saw some people have typed in questions into the Q&A. And uh, I will be doing a full Q&A at the two o'clock hour when this first hour is done. So I encourage you to stay on. I'm going to address everybody's question. And uh, you even get an extra, I believe, half credit if you uh, stay on for that uh, last half hour in addition to the first hour. So Michelle can take care of that for you. And um, always, uh, as most of you know, I enjoy when people put questions into the Q&A. Feel free, you can respond. And it's something we can talk about uh, when we get to the last part of the, of the program in, the, in the, that last half hour. Uh, this is a community of all of us. We're all lawyers. I certainly don't know everything. There's a lot more that I don't know than what I do know. And we all 
have knowledge in different areas. So if you see a question out there and you have some thoughts to share or can help or can help me, please drop it in the Q&A so we can all benefit from it. All right, so now we've talked a little bit about the need to explore all potential tort feasors to make sure that you've exhausted every potential avenue of insurance coverage or compensation available to your client if you can prove the case. So how do you do that? How do you find all this out? Well, the very first starting point in any case is doing a thorough interview of your client or your client's family, depending on the circumstances of the accident, or your client's friends who were there, uh, and try and get as much information you can um, from them about what happened. Where was the accident? What were the circumstances of it? Where were you coming from? Were you all out drinking? Who was driving? What's the story? Why'd the accident happen? You have to ask a lot of questions, pay attention, take a lot of notes, all right? Then I always like to go online and do research, usually in major accidents where there's a catastrophic injury or death. Uh, it's in some news organization, even if it's not the main news, uh, maybe it's in a local news. So I always go online and do searches with my client's name or the location, and you type in terms like accident and uh, injuries. And, and oftentimes you'll see stuff in there that is a, you can do your own research. I was involved in a case just last year where it was a little further upstate New York near Rochester and there was a head-on collision where one truck crossed over and crashed into a van with my clients in it, uh, killing one and badly injuring the other two. And I did some research online. It led me from one thing to another and I found videos posted uh, from some small news outlet. I don't even think it was a, a real news outlet. It was some foundation. Whoever it was, they, they got footage and they posted it and I found it right away. So do everything you can on your own as far as research. And then, of course, the first actual documentation that you need to get in any serious automobile accident is the police report. Now, there are two different types of reports I want to mention. The first is sort of the standard police accident report known as the PAR, police accident report. It's what we all think of when we think of an automobile accident. It's usually a few pages. It has information on each driver. Sometimes it identifies either their insurance company or at least gives you the insurance code so you can locate the insurance company. There'll be a diagram of the accident. I've included one in the materials for today, uh, and you'll see it's a three-pager, and it's on PDF pages 33 to 36. You can look at it now, or you can look at it at a later time, but just make a note it's on pages 33 through 36. When I reference the materials, it is the uh, PDF page, since they're all combined in one PDF. So if you go to page 33, you will see an example of a police accident report. Uh, just a note on the materials for today. I gave you materials which primarily focus on one serious uh, catastrophic automobile accident my firm handled many years ago, where um, our client, a young man, is operating a motor vehicle car uh, on the thruway 87, and he's behind a tractor trailer. Tractor trailer is one of the, it's got the long, you know, rig in the back with the, the truck up front driving it. And according to the police report, our client was trying to get around the tractor trailer. And uh, in so doing, he was going from the right lane to the left lane. And as he was trying to go around the tractor trailer, according to the police report, he clipped the back left corner of the tractor trailer or its tire. And spun out, flipping his car 
over a guardrail, down an embankment, rolling the car. And he was really, really, he survived, but catastrophically injured. Numerous, numerous injuries, brain injuries, fractures all over, uh, life-changing type stuff. And upon first glance, we said, wow, this is going to be a, a tough case, um, but that's what we do. And that's what you all should do too. As much as looking into possible areas of coverage and tortfeasors, you have to look into how to establish liability. And when the injury is catastrophic, you must take all steps to explore establishing liability. Because in New York, it's a comparative fault state. Comparative fault. It's not a complete bar, even if your client is partially at fault. And it's that way in many jurisdictions in the United States. So even if we were, could show that our client was 90% at fault, right? But even if we could establish 10% on the tractor trailer, if it's a $10 million injury, 10% of that would be $1 million. So in a catastrophic injury case, percentages make a difference. You need to look into all avenues of proving fault. And that's what we did. So I've included in the materials, a lot of documents, police reports, accident investigation reports. And I'm going to talk about those right now. And again, I'll refer to the PDF page. Feel free to take a look now or at your convenience. I'd ask everybody to obviously keep these documents to yourself. They're for educational and training purposes and to assist you as attorneys. They're not meant to be shared uh, publicly with anybody other than yourself and, and who's present on this program. But you're going to see a police report. It's your basic police report. I've also included in the materials at page 84 is a police accident report cover sheet. Many of you know what this is, but many of you may not. And if you're learning about it for the first time, this is going to be a, a, a nice tidbit you're picking up. When you have a police accident report, you will see that on the outside perimeter of that police accident report, there's a bunch of boxes that line the sides with numbers in them and little arrows. And different numbers are entered in different boxes. And what do those numbers mean? And what do those boxes mean that are along the outside, all these codes? Well, uh, what's on page 84 is the cover sheet, and that explains what all the codes are. So, for example, if it says in box 19, enter direction of travel of vehicle 1, and then 1 is north, 2 is south, 3 is east, 4 is west, and they put the number 1 in, you see the number one in that box, you know the direction of travel was north. And there's lots of good information to be had in those little boxes. It talks about the conditions causing the accident. It may have things like driver inattention. It may have things like failure to yield. It may have intoxication in there. So you're going to want to get that police report and you're going to want to take out that cover page and it's uniform, at least the one I'm giving you is for New York, and uh, size it up because some good stuff can be found there. And trust me, we've, we've gotten good stuff from those boxes. So that's in the materials. Now, in a really catastrophic, serious injury case involving an automobile on a roadway, in addition to that police accident report, which is something you can usually get within the first few weeks of the accident, um, there will be usually a deeper investigation. In a death case in New York City or in New York State, uh, the police will always do an accident investigation report, known as an AIS report. And that is going to be a very detailed report. They're going to do a full workup. They're going to take photographs and measurements and do their own accident reconstruction, determine contributing causes. It's going to be a multi-page document that will often have lots of data in it. And they will often do that in a case where there is a catastrophic injury, even if it's not a death case. So um, you want to find out 
if in addition to the original police accident report, whether or not there's going to be this AIS report. There's also something known, depending on which entity you get it from, as a CRU or a um, construction, uh, um, uh, a CRU construction uh, reconstruction unit or ACU, accident, ARU, accident reconstruction unit. So there may be a construction uh, unit that does it. There may be an investigation unit. These are going to be more detailed reports that can take six months, seven months. Uh, you have to stay on it. You have to send a FOIL request. Sometimes you have to send a subpoena. So you're going to want to reach out to that investigating unit, whether it's the state police, the town police, the city police, the feds, and then ask them, will they comply with a FOIL request? Um, sometimes you could send an email, fill something out online, send in a letter. Sometimes they'll say you need to serve a subpoena. In the case that I'm referring to in the materials, we were in federal court and it was state police. So uh, there's a copy of the subpoena uh, that we used in there. That's on page 17 is the sample subpoena for the, uh, for the accident investigation records. Uh, so in the materials, you'll see both a regular police report and this more robust detailed report. And you have to wait on that sometimes and it stinks, but you, you keep pressing and pressing until you get it and it can take a while. Okay. But if they do that workup, you'll see in the materials, there's a, a bounty of information in there that can assist you. And oftentimes you can get from an accident investigation report, this detailed report, or you can get it by demanding it and requesting it from the tortfeasor directly is something known as an event data recorder or a crash data retrieval system. We all know this is the famous black box. Now, whether or not it's physically a black box or not, I'm not so sure it is anymore. But back in the day, it started off with planes and they made these black boxes that contained all the data of all the electronics and the engines and everything involved in a plane. And they made them bomb proof and just and indestructible so that if a plane went down, they could get this box and get all the data they need to find out. Well, that technology ultimately worked its way into the automotive industry. And now I think pretty much every motor vehicle on the road today. Uh, I don't know when they started. Maybe one of you can put it in the Q&A. But at some point, they started requiring that uh, new vehicles have some type of event data recorder. So these are known as EDRs, event data recorder, CDR, uh, crash data retrieval. And there's a great example of one that was contained in the state accident investigation report in the case we had in the materials. Uh, it starts on page 50. And you'll see the, the information contained in there. It's pure gold for a qualified accident reconstruction expert. The data contained in these event data recorders uh, will give you speeds, not only at the time of impact, but seconds leading up to the impact, seconds leading afterwards. They tell you how fast at 0.1 second, 0.2, three seconds, four seconds before impact. They'll tell you when the brake was applied, when the accelerator was applied, with how much force, with what percentage of pressure. So you can see if someone's accelerating, if someone's braking. They'll talk about whether the seatbelt was on, uh, whether or not the airbags were activated, whether cruise control was on or off, whether ABS, the anti-lock braking system, was in effect at the time, uh, what the tire pressure was. So there's so much information in there that you can figure things out just by taking the time to read it and sort of 
start off with something that looks like crazy data, hard to understand, and you can start to figure it out if you stare at it long enough. Believe me, I have. Um, but when you give it to a qualified accident reconstruction expert, um, they know exactly what to do with this data, and they can take that data, they can put it into their animation models, and they can they can reinvent the accident and show you in modeling uh, exactly the movements, the speeds of the vehicles, and and can re recreate it. So. That's how you're going to find out a lot more information about the case. And that's how you can dispel what may appear to be real bad statements against your client in a police report, just like the statement contained in our client's report that you have here, that it was all his fault. He tried an unsafe pass and clipped the back of the truck while that truck was maintaining its position in the right lane and flipped over. Because once we got all that data, we got our accident reconstruction expert on board. And we were able to establish through the photos and the data that the truck, and despite the guy saying, the driver of the tractor trailer, that he was maintaining his speed and staying in the right lane only, we saw he was increasing his speed at the time of impact and he was had half of his vehicle in the left lane. Maybe he was looking over his shoulder and trying to keep this guy from passing him. I don't know, but we know now the data shows he was lying to the police when he said he was maintaining speed and staying in the right lane. Ultimately, we are able to, we, we served the subpoena on the investigator for the police department and uh, prepared with questions that I have in the materials for you from our expert reconstructionist expert who prepared me on what to ask this trooper. I did that as the first deposition in this case. I didn't even do that before the plaintiff or the defendant was deposed. And as a result of all this information, we were able to get the case settled for a substantial figure of close to the, of a substantial policy limit with the argument that even 10% would be a lot of money in this case. So what may have turned out to another firm, uh, they didn't dig this deep to be, you know, you're going nowhere. The police report has you at fault. You are in the back. There's no way uh, we're able to get a great, uh, result for our client. So I've included the deposition transcript of the state trooper, as well as questions in the materials. Uh, if you find yourself uh, looking into a case like this, it'll give you a good foundation and outline of how to pursue it. So in this incident, in this incident, incident, sorry, um, we got our investigator on early. And that's what you need to do to build a proper foundation for these catastrophic automobile accident cases. You have to get your investigation and your experts involved really early on. So the first expert you got to get going with is your investigator or your investigative team. Your investigator is going to help you explore all these avenues. They're going to get the police accident report, at least the initial. They can even file FOIL requests for you for records. They can look for video of the accident, find witnesses, get statements. If you want to find out if there was a dram shop involved, you'll dispatch your investigator to the restaurants, to the bars, to see you know who was working that night. What did they see? Do they have video footage? Uh, if they do, then you'll be able to send requests for that footage and see if uh, the defendant was on there. You can subpoena their records. You can send preservation letters. We're going to talk in the next part next month about what to do once you get some information as far as who to send letters to and what to, to write. But a good investigator is going to do all of this stuff. They can go to the location of where the vehicles may have been towed because they were so badly damaged. Take photographs of the damage. Uh, 
So investigators need to be dispatched immediately in these cases and have them help you explore tort feasors. If it could be a roadway design, you may send them to the local precinct and ask them if it's been determined to be an accident prone location. Uh, do the police know if they get called to a lot of accidents there? A really good investigator or investigative team dispatched promptly can get a bounty of information for you to help you uh, establish uh, liability against various tort feasors. Now, you may want to get an automobile engineer out right away before something happens to the car involved to do an inspection of it, to photograph it. If you want to see whether or not it may be a product's case, they can check the brake lines. They can see if there was an event data recorder. They could download data off of it. So you want to get an automobile engineer out and or an accident reconstructionist. Sometimes that expert's the same person. They know how to download the data, look for things, and they can take their photos and their measurements at the scene of the accident so they can reconstruct what happened. You don't want to have to rely on the state, especially since you have to wait six months, and the state or the city or the investigative body may not have done a full workup. They may just, you just may have a one, two, or three-page police accident report, and that's it. So you need to spend the money and send your own people in to measure skid marks and take photos of perspectives while the scene is still fresh. One of the ways we're able to prove this case where a client came around the backside of the tractor trailer was because of a mark on the roadway, a, a dark rubber mark extending several feet that was in the left lane, not the right lane. And we, there were photos taken of it. And our expert told us, we think that happened when the collision happened because it puts pressure when the wheels collide and sort of lock up. And that must be the point of the collision. So the collision occurred in the middle of the left lane, not in the right lane. And I got that confirmation from the police officer to agree with that. You'll see in the, the transcript I gave you. So you're going to want to send out these experts early on so they can take the data down, they can take the measurements, the photographs, um, and inspect the vehicle. So you must do that when you're dealing with a potential catastrophic injury. If you think there may be a product's liability case, that's another reason you need to have your engineer out there. You also want to know if your engineer does believe that there may be something, that you take steps to preserve that vehicle. Oftentimes, a badly damaged vehicle will be towed and left at an impound. Sometimes the insurance company wants to take possession of it. Sometimes if it's been deemed a total, they'll destroy it. You need to make sure that that vehicle is preserved because you don't have a product's case if you don't have the product, okay? So you want to preserve that. And sometimes you have to arrange to get it stored at a warehouse. And you as the lawyer have to pay the fee to maintain that vehicle uh, for the you know, pendency of the litigation to make sure you have access to it. So it's another reason you need to get out to the location early. Uh, if you think it's a dram shop case, you need to start researching the facilities. We had a case where our client, this was up in Rockland County, was on Route 17. He was in the back seat of a car late at night and the driver was drunk. It was a one car accident. He was going really fast and lost control, crashed into a guide rail. The guide rail broke. The guide rail pierced through the vehicle killed the driver, pierced through into our client who was seated behind the driver, pierced through his legs and amputated his legs and ejected him out of the car where he landed on the roadway some hundred feet away from the car uh, without his legs. Okay. And we had to wait six months to get the AIS report. But in that case, we explored roadway design, 
guardrail. We started a case against in the court of claims against the state of New York for the guardrail claim. We looked into the dram shop claim because we were able to find out that they started the night off at a Mexican restaurant where they were all drinking at the bar. They left that restaurant. They went to a bowling alley that had a bar and they drank and hung out at that bowling alley. And then they decided to hit a nightcap at another bar uh, before they were all heading home and had this accident. So we had to look into all these restaurants. We had to send claim letters, which I'll get to in the next uh, segment next month. Um, We had to canvas, see if they had footage. We had to find out who was there, who he was with, who were his dining companions, drinking companions, do research on those places. We did looking into the liquor authority for their licenses. So you have to explore all of these things in, in, a, in a catastrophic injury case. And we ultimately resolved that case. It turned out that the driver of the vehicle, the vehicle was owned by the father who had a good amount of insurance coverage and an umbrella policy. It turns out there was a decent amount of uh, liquor liability coverage for the restaurants. So we got coverage from them. And now we continued against the state. And unfortunately, we lost in the court of claims. Uh, But we pushed it all the way to the limit. And that's what you have to do for a a client in a situation like that. So you have to explore everything, okay? And you don't win them all, but we did really well with all the other parties and we were able to, uh, you know, change the future for our client moving forward to give him the resources that he needs. So if it's a highway design case, you're gonna wanna, you know, get information. You're gonna wanna do your research immediately. Uh, Sometimes it takes going down yourself to the Department of Transportation for where it happened. So my father did back then, There's no substitute for going down yourself and looking through files. Try and get what you can online, but send people, retain people, or just do it yourself, okay? And then after you've explored um, all these potential avenues to look into, after you do that, then you will be in a position to move forward with your case and you will have the foundation. But if you just go off and you start looking into who the other automobile driver was, Uh, and you find out, oh, that's it for coverage, and you fail to look into dram shop or highway design, uh, then the statute may have expired. And then not only have you possibly committed legal malpractice, but for your client, you've, because of your failures to explore this, they've lost the potential for a life-changing recovery to give them what they need. So it's, good practice, it's good lawyering, and it's your obligation as a lawyer that when a catastrophic injury or death case comes your way, um, that you take all these initial steps. You spend the money. It costs money, folks. There's no shortcut. And if you are not um, financially capable, if you're a small firm uh, without the ability to start giving retainer fees to accident reconstructionists and automobile engineers and whoever else you need to get out there, then you need to work with a firm that has the resources to do it or refer it or get involved. We work with a lot of uh, lawyers that say, listen, this is a big case. It's a big injury. I don't want to screw it up. Um, Can you guys handle this case and make sure, you know, my client, you know, is afforded all the opportunities to get the proper, you know, compensation to provide for them for the rest of their life. So that's good lawyering. It's making sure that you work either independently or within a firm or with another firm uh, to provide for a client in a life altering situation. And then once you've laid this foundation, um, then you have your experts, uh, then you have your theories, 
Then you start working with your team, your experts, your reconstructionists. You start asking questions, maybe doing early depositions. Start thinking of the causes of action for the complaint. You start thinking about where you want to file it, uh, where you have jurisdiction. How are you going to get jurisdiction over Federal Express in this area? Um, how are you going to get jurisdiction over an out-of-state driver? Um, where do you want to bring the case? Uh, are there punitive damages involved? Um, how do you plead a dram shop case? These are all things we're going to talk about next month when we talk about commencing the action. But until you have the foundation that we've talked about today, you can't go to the next step because you haven't gotten the information that you need. And the proper experts are going to help you. Uh, they're going to give you the theories, the causes of action that you'll be able to use to draft a proper claim letter, to know where you need to file notices of claim uh, if you have a claim against the state or a municipality, depending on whether it's a roadway design or something else. Uh, and then once you have all this information, you'll be prepared to move forward to the next step. And that's what we're going to do in the next step, which is going to be in part two uh, on March 2nd. We usually try and do it the first Wednesday of each month. This, this week, I uh, couldn't do it on Wednesday, so I apologize because I don't know if Fridays are better. But um, So March 2nd, it's a Wednesday. We're going to talk about the next step once you have identified all of the potential players of how to proceed. And so we're going to wrap up this first portion. But what I want to point out before we wrap up and get to the Q&A is that my focus in this part, this first part, in building the foundation and the investigation is on liability because that's really where you need to get focused. It's a given when the case is coming to you that it's a catastrophic injury, usually at the start of a case. You've been told there's been a fatality. You've been told that someone's paralyzed, someone's not in a coma, uh, someone is having surgery on their spine, they're in the ICU. So usually when the case comes to you, um, you're, you're getting the information that leads you to believe, wow, this is a major injury. This is a major case. We better get on it. And you learn the circumstances of the case. Usually when someone's in a car that rolls over at, at, on a highway or gets ejected um, and you, you get that information, you know it's a catastrophic injury. However, you still need to do your initial investigation, obviously, into the injuries. Okay, So that's going to be doing a proper intake. We spoke about this in the initial series of, of when you open up a file, and you're going to need to find out all the doctors, the hospital. If your client is in the hospital, you're going to want to go meet with your client. Um, you know, it's not fun doing hospital visits, but uh, you, you're going to want to do that if your client is able to communicate with you and in the hospital, uh, if you're being told that your client has recollection of the events, because you're going to want to get that information directly from your client. And you want to reassure your client. This all starts with informing your client and being prepared, my mantras. Uh, you want to establish that relationship with your client uh, and your client's family. And if you can't do it in person, then maybe set up a Zoom or family FaceTime and let them know, here's what you're doing. Here's how it works. Tell them at the outset that, listen, you know, there may be a problem. Just, just because you're horrifically injured, it appears that this other vehicle involved in your accident may not have a lot of insurance coverage. So we're trying to explore every opportunity. Um, where are you out drinking? Um, do you know if there's anything wrong with the car? What have you learned? What, is, what, what can you share with us? Help us to help you. And so you can get information from your client early on about the accident. You can learn more about their injuries. They can tell you what they've gone through so far and what lays ahead. And, um, 
And this way, you know, uh, if you can provide them with any resources that they need to get them in touch with the appropriate specialists uh, or do some homework or research for them. Many clients are freaking out about how bills are going to get paid uh, when they're in a situation where they're in an ICU in a catastrophic injury. Many times you're dealing with a spouse or a family member of someone who's either passed away or who is not able to communicate because they're so badly injured and you're going to need to help them perhaps find a guardian uh, to assist you, get guardianships so that you have legal standing. So these are also other avenues that you need to look into to make sure that you have the legal capacity to represent a seriously injured party because you can't start a lawsuit unless someone's been appointed guardian if that person does not have the wherewithal to sign retainers and sign a, com uh, a complaint and commence the action. So these are areas you're going to have to explore as well. Uh, what's going on with the injured party and uh, communicating with uh, their family uh, or their closest contact person and identifying who that is and keeping those channels of communication open, letting them know what you're investigating, why you're investigating and how they can help you. And if you do all of that and everything we've talked about, I'm confident that you will be uh, on your way to establishing and laying the foundation for a potential monster case, a catastrophic injury case, where hopefully you can establish that there is a tortfeasor with sufficient coverage to ultimately compensate your client. Or at the very least, you've explored every opportunity and you could feel comfortable that when you're telling your client to sign that release for $25,000, that that is all there is, that you've explored every possible nook and cranny uh, of recovery for that client. And, um, and you've done a good job and you've done your job as a lawyer at that point. So I look forward to sharing more with you in part two on the next step of where you go in the journey of litigating a catastrophic automobile accident injury case. And now we're going to get into the Q&A. Uh, so I hope that you stay on with me. This is often where some of the secret sauce is uh, shared uh, during this next half hour. If not, uh, thank you for joining me. And, um, and I look forward to seeing you at the next one. But I'm going to try and go through all the Q&As now. And, uh, and I thank you. I saw during some of the breaks that many of you have answered uh, some of the questions uh, directly. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, but I'm going to try and go through. And again, if anybody has any thoughts, please share, please type away, and I'm going to do my best to get through everything. So here we go. Uh, Mary's asked a question about a client's vehicle being struck by a head-on drunk driver, arrested at the scene, and a summons. How do you get the records in a criminal case? Really good question, Mary. There will often be in a situation like this an arrest if a driver's drunk or there's reason to believe that uh, they were doing something improper to... Uh, result in someone's death or catastrophic injury. And it's very difficult to get criminal records. Usually you can't. But what you can do is communicate with the district attorney's office prosecuting the case, send them a letter of representation, let them know you're on the file, ask them that all communication go through you to your client as a complaining witness. This way you can be involved. Uh, but usually you can't get the records uh, until the case is closed. And if it's not sealed, and even then you have to subpoena records and do FOIL requests. So it's not easy. Uh, but the first step is to establish communication with the prosecutor and then ask them, what's the best way I can get these records? And then do your best to try and get them throughout the case. Sometimes you can get them, if not initially, later on. Okay. Um, and sometimes there's really good stuff there. If they take a plea, 
and they allocute in open court, which is they stand up and acknowledge their wrongdoing uh, in exchange for taking a reduced uh, sentence or a plea or a violation. Uh, and then you can have that testimony and get a copy of it to use in your case as an acknowledgement of fault. So whenever there's a criminal case pending, there are ways to work uh, with the prosecutor and with the defendant uh, you know, in your civil case to try and use it to your advantage. Okay, the next question from Stephen is whether or not there's a way to independently verify existence or non-existence of umbrella coverage. Uh, and I see that someone has responded to that where there's a special insurance demand that you can do. It's an amendment to CPLR 3101. Uh, Joshua Canones has said that. So maybe you can uh, post that here on the chat for everybody, or uh, you know, we can all reach out and, and bug you, or we can all do our own research. But it's great if there's a tool for that. Um, generally, what we do is we reach out to the to the uh, defendant or the defendant's carrier, and we put the onus on them that we want to see uh, the policies. Uh, we want an affidavit of no coverage. And then generally, if you check out the tort feeser, if it looks like someone that should have extra coverage, you may not want to take their word for it and do your own independent asset check. Uh, that's another thing we always do to cover ourselves professionally and for our client. When we get an affidavit of no excess and there is a catastrophic injury, we will have an investigator do an asset check to see whether they own any substantial property or business or have assets that uh, potentially you could go after uh, if you did have a judgment. So that's another way to go about it. Um, will regular umbrella policy cover damages above auto policy limits? Uh, does it have to be specifically to auto? So generally speaking, it depends on the policy. A homeowner's policy, generally speaking, is not going to cover uh, an automobile accident. It's not going to be excess coverage. It's not going to be additional coverage. If it's a homeowner policy, it usually will exclude automobile cases. You usually will want to see if there's a specific excess or umbrella policy that does cover automobile. And each policy is written differently. So all you need to do is request the policy. If you're in litigation, folks, here's a mistake a lot of lawyers make. You are entitled to all insurance policies of the defendant tortfeasor in the case, not just a coverage amount, not just an insurance disclosure saying they were insured by State Farm with policy limits of 100 slash 300. You are entitled to the entire policy with all amendments and everything that comes with it. And you must request it. And when you get it, you must read through it and you must see uh, what it says, because some policies are different than others. Some will cover things, some won't. So you have to get every policy, you have to read through it. And if you do not feel that you have the qualification, the comfort level of reviewing policies, then consult with another lawyer who may. Uh, there are certain lawyers that specialize in insurance coverage issues, and uh, you can reach out to them and ask them for a professional opinion, uh, or just reach out to colleagues that practice in the area to take a quick look. But generally, homeowners doesn't cover auto, and auto does not cover anything other than auto. And auto will not cover automobile accident either. I mean, um, uh, motorcycle accidents. Automobile coverage is just for automobiles. So you're going to want to look at all of the policies. Okay. Um, someone's asking about whether insurance policies in the household of the tortfeasor, how does that apply? So again, homeowner's insurance generally is not going to cover injuries from an automobile accident. Other auto policies are not going to cover the auto in this case. So generally, if the person that caused the accident has more than one car, uh, the other car's policy is not stackable with the one car. 
All right. So unless they have an umbrella over all of them, uh, you're out of luck there. And so a homeowner's policy is not going to do do for you any good. Uh, SUM coverage, again, listen to the other CLE, Michelle put the link up, but basically SUM coverage covers everybody in the household. So if the your injured party was living with cousin Phil at the time of the accident and cousin Phil had an SUM policy on cousin Phil's car of a million dollars, that SUM policy is gonna cover your client if you can establish your client was living with cousin Phil. And there you go, you've just found a 1 million SUM policy. So that's one of the things you need to look into. All right, Marguerite's asking about the sun in my eye accidents. Can a homeowner driveway designer be liable? Uh, can the highway or state be liable for the sun in the eye? Uh, I don't think that that's a, a valid cause of action and it's up to the driver. If it's too sunny that a driver cannot drive safely, then that driver needs to have sunglasses on, that driver needs to pull over to the side of the road. But if the driver says the sun was in my eyes, that is not, uh, in my opinion, a viable defense to an action. And I don't think you can bring in another tortfeasor that they designed the highway improperly because it's going into the into the sunset or the sunrise, uh, east or west. I don't believe that that is a viable claim and there's probably qualified immunity for that. Um, if you don't own a car, which insurance carrier sells reputable SUM coverage? Uh, Kay, you're just gonna have to look up, but I do know that there are ways to get SUM coverage. Even if you don't own a car, uh, just speak to any of your insurance brokers, they can help you. I can always offline with you, find someone who can help you. But I actually had a client who lived in New York City, was crossing the street, was hit by a car with a minimum insurance, and God bless her, she had a $500,000 SUM policy. And I said, oh my goodness, you don't have a car, do you? What do you, what, how do you have this? And she said, I've been living in New York all my life. I never needed a driver's license, but someone once told me about SUM and I said, well, if I'm gonna get injured, it's probably gonna be when I'm crossing the street, so I better get this. And she had it and we got the policy for her and got her an extra you know, $475,000 she wouldn't have had otherwise. So uh, those policies are out there and you should look into getting them. Um, black box data, how do you get that? You're either going to get it through an AIS report like I have in the materials, because if they do a workup and there is a black box, they are going to download that data and have it so you can get it by a FOIL request um, or you have to get it yourself uh, by sending an appropriate automobile engineer who can download it uh, to that vehicle to access it. In a 2019 accident, Carol is asking, would that event data recorder information still be available? Uh, I do not know the answer. It depends if the car is still in operation. I don't know how far back the event data recorder information goes. I would imagine that it doesn't keep it all indefinitely and it will record over each itself probably on some type of cycle of 30 days or so. So uh, most likely it won't still be there. Usually in a catastrophic injury case, that vehicle uh, has been taken out of commission and that's the time that you want to get the black box data. Uh, and yes, you can serve a preservation letter, Brian. We'll talk about that next month uh, for the vehicle and for all black box data to be preserved. All right, Carl's got a question where the decedent was struck and killed on a bicycle by a driver in a rental car while using an oxygen mask at the time. <laughs> Accident occurred on a roadway in the city where the road had a speed limit of 25. Uh, 
You know, this is just, I haven't even read the whole thing, but I love these fact patterns because I had a torts professor at Brooklyn Law School. He was, uh, and I know I'm going off tangent, but I'll get back. He was visiting from like Ohio. And uh, he reminded me of Phil Donahue, if you guys remember Phil Donahue. He would go up and down the classroom and call on us. And what about this? What about that? And he used to say, I love being in New York City. All I've got to do is open up the, any of the newspapers. And, it, and it's got, you know, a, a fact pattern for my torts class all the time. I mean, you, you just can't make this stuff up. So here we've got uh, a person on a bicycle, a 75-year-old riding a bicycle, uh, killed by a driver with an oxygen mask on, on a roadway, following uh going over a bridge over a river where the speed limit was 50 the bicyclist didn't have a helmet on the wrong side of the road cross in front of the driver <laughs> and then you got a pamphlet about the roadway and needed speed for bicyclists um, from local residents driver had prior arrest for cocaine more than one dui wow this is chock full of stuff police made an extremely quick determination the bicyclist was at fault and did not ticket the driver. How would I decompress all of this? <laughs> well, this is exactly the type of case that you would want to look into. First of all, um, are the damages catastrophic? Was the 75-year-old alive or was he killed immediately? Uh, the current state of the law that if he's killed immediately, unfortunately, the damages are limited. That is what the Academy is working so hard to change the law with the Grieving Families Act that we, we need all of you to take action with and with your clients, because we've got a good shot at getting it passed this year by the state legislature in New York, where it wouldn't be restrictive damages and grief would be an element of compensation. So you want to look into that because if the damages are not worth it, it may be a matter of cost that you may look into all of this and all the experts you would need would outweigh the recovery, okay? So, but if you determine that the damages are potentially there, then yeah, you gotta send your investigator, you gotta go to the police uh, precinct, you gotta see if it's an accident prone location, you gotta see how many prior incidents, you gotta see if the roadway, if the municipality in charge of it, whether it's the state or local, um, whether they received complaints about the speed limits and failed to do something. Uh, then you have to show the speed was a contributing cause. Now, even if they did have speed limit signs up there, uh, whether or not that would have made a difference if the guy was speeding, if he was speeding, uh, what was he doing with an oxygen mask on? It certainly seems like it's negligent to drive while holding an oxygen mask on your face. So there's a lot of areas, but definitely this is a perfect fact pattern of where you'd want to explore everything. And just because they ticketed your client doesn't mean or your client's decedent certainly doesn't mean that your client's decedent was at fault. Uh, unless the police were there and observed it, they may be just taking the word of the driver because your client is dead. Um, so, you know, you never take that stuff at face value. If we did that in the case that I gave you the materials on, uh, then we would have gone nowhere. You have to dig into the case and show really what happened, not just what a police officer says in a report. If that police officer came after the fact and doesn't have any first-hand basis for that opinion, okay? Um, yeah, a good investigator for a fatal pedestrian knockdown. Uh, so sponsor of the Academy is PM Legal. Uh, just Google them, PM Legal. They have a great investigative department, process servers, and the like. Okay. Um, you're welcome, Howard, for the overview. Uh, how do you investigate a 19-car accident? Wow. Um, Generally speaking, the cars in the middle usually aren't going to be the ones at fault. You're always going to want to focus on the cars closest to your uh, car. Everyone's going to blame the one in the back 
A lot of them are going to blame the one in the front. The way you investigate it is the same way as any other case. You got to get the police report. You got to see who the witnesses are, who the drivers are, statements, weather conditions. Usually in a 19 car pileup, it's probably involving a condition of like ice on the roadway, something like that. Those are very, very tricky and tough cases. Uh, So that's how I would investigate it the same as any other case. All right. I like it. Some people are putting in some other investigators they use. Have I gotten streetlight surveillance footage of accidents from municipalities under FOIL? Good question, Joshua. These are the cameras that are posted uh, by the municipality. Um, I don't recall the last time we've gotten one. I think you can get them, uh, but you got to work fast. You have to serve the appropriate subpoenas and notices on the city or the municipality to get them. But I believe it is discoverable. Okay. Uh, any advice on defending a catastrophic auto accident case? Yes, I do have advice. I would do the work up the same exact way. You want to have your reconstructionist there early. You don't want to rely on the police report because then if it's just a plaintiff that uh, puts their experts on it to show that it was wrong, then you're left and trying to defend the police report uh, without having your own experts. So if you're defending a catastrophic injury case, Get your experts out there early, be in defense mode. Get your automotive engineers out there to say there's nothing wrong with the vehicle. Uh, Get your accident reconstructionists out there. Send for all the same data, download the black box. Ultimately, as lawyers, we we all want to get to the bottom of it and get as much data and information as possible. Then we give it to our experts to sort through and sort it out. Um, Again, start working immediately on the injuries. The one mistake I generally see uh, as a plaintiff's lawyer in catastrophic injury cases made by insurance companies and defense firms is that they miss a golden opportunity to resolve cases early. I can't tell you how many times my client would be open to entertaining an offer of a million dollars on a catastrophic injury case if that offer came fast and early and respectfully, or a a real offer where after litigating it for four years, they end up paying four or five million dollars. And all that they've accomplished is spending more money on experts and defense lawyers, and uh, they end up paying more to the client. So I would recommend there's often an early window of opportunity where a client and a law firm, uh, when, you know, I've talked a lot about this in my prior series about early settlement and the pros and cons. If you can get money now for your client that's substantial, that can help them, and they may not have to wait four or five years with the expenses that are involved, uh, that may be something worth considering. And you can often save your insurance carrier and your insurance company a lot of money by looking into early resolution of a catastrophic injury case. Uh, And I see that mistake made all the time, all the time. So I would encourage early resolution, offer real money early um, and, and offer it saying, listen, it's a bad injury. We will defend this case. We have defenses, but we want to make a real offer now to resolve the case, to avoid litigation. And so your client can focus on getting on with his or her life and have uh, some compensation to do that moving forward. And I I would encourage you to do that. All right. Um, If the driver is drunk, don't insurance companies deny coverage because it's outside of the coverage? I have not found that. You know, they may posture that they don't cover that, but it's still negligent operation of a motor vehicle to be driving under the influence of alcohol. And uh, I've never had a proper disclaimer in a situation like that. So you should be okay. Um, 
what remedy do you have if they won't give you a black box? Then you want to file an order to show cause. I'm sure one of you knows the CPLR provision in New York, and I'm sure that provision exists uh, in other jurisdictions as well, that um, you are allowed to get pre-litigation discovery uh, and you make the argument that you need to do this uh, to determine whether or not there is a viable cause of action to pursue. You don't want to file uh, a lawsuit unless you believe that there's merit to it. And in order to determine if there's merit, you need some initial investigation and they're refusing to give it to you. So you want the court to order it. And uh, the court will sometimes do it, sometimes not. You may say file your lawsuit, but you can try it that way. At the very least, you want to serve a preservation letter, put them on notice so that you can get a uh, a charge of spoliation if they do not preserve it later on. Um, do I have a sample FOIL demand for the extended investigations in these types of cases? Um, shoot me an email at asmiley at smileylaw.com. I'm sure we can come up with a FOIL sample for you. Um, how does excess coverage work is being asked. Does a carrier have to have an attorney appear in the lawsuit and how do they get them to do that? Mikhail, generally what happens is the primary insurance company for that vehicle will assign the attorneys. It is the defense attorney's job to explore whether or not there's excess or umbrella coverage. That's one of their obligations in defending the case and they have to tell you whether there is excess coverage. When there is an excess insurance coverage policy, and if it's not the same as the primary, the primary policy runs the litigation, the excess carrier is on notice and has to be aware, and they may ask to take over the case, they may ask to change lawyers with their lawyers, uh, but generally what will happen is, is it's still the primary law firm for the primary policy that will run the case, and then if it gets to a point where settlement's involved and that excess insurance coverage is needed to get the case resolved, then the lawyer will speak with the insurance company for the excess, okay? Um, you have a list of what documents would be generated by the extended inv investigation so you can make sure to ask for everything. John, I don't have a specific list, um, but look at the materials that I've can put in there and uh, you'll get a good idea. I mean, you're, you're going to want all the data. You're going to want the event data recorders. You're going to want photographs. In a police report, even in the simple PAR, the police accident report, there's always a box up top saying police accident photos, yes or no, check box. So if the box is checked yes, then you're going to want to request all the photos. Um, you're going to want to get everything. You're going to get the data event plan, a recorder. You're going to want to get the uh, photos, witness statements, supporting statements, uh, but look at the materials that I gave in this. That'll give you a good idea. Hey, Professor Leitner for torts. All right, Robert, Jerry Leitner, Brooklyn Law. He wasn't my professor, but uh, great, great professor. Um, how do you find out where a person was drinking if they've been arrested and won't volunteer? So it's tricky. You know, sometimes uh, you, you don't know, uh, but usually the, uh, the police will look into that. Um, you'll have to do a FOIL request. You'll have to butter, butter up the prosecutor, serve subpoenas, and try and get it. Uh, in cases that we've had where our client is in a car with a vehicle who is driving while drunk, they know. Um, so it's not always easy to find out. But you, if you don't know the party and have no contact, then you need to. Sometimes you send a claim letter to the person directly. You can ask them to identify. You can call them up. You have your investigator reach out to them, pre-suit or their family and find out. So it's not always easy. You got to 
think outside the box and see if your investigator can help and reach out to the prosecutor uh, if they're prosecuting the case. I see someone talking about an accident in Florida. I don't practice there. So you're gonna have to just do a little independent research to see what the laws work like down there. Can you subpoena the state trooper and compel her to bring the AIS report instead of going through FOIL? Good question. So you can subpoena the state trooper. That's what I did in the case materials that you have. You'll see the subpoena there and you'll see my deposition of the state trooper. But a state trooper is not going to show up with the with the with the report before you get it through the normal channels. The reason that it takes so long is there's so many different levels of authority that have to review and sign off of the report. So there's lots of last minute signatures they need to get in the hierarchy in the police department. And they're not gonna let a state trooper show up with it at a deposition until everybody signed off on it. So usually you'll get it before the deposition occurs anyway. But good, good thinking of another way to try and get it. Okay. Um, Taxi cabs, where the drivers are purported to be independent contractors. Can a taxi company be liable for the driver? Um, so that's a good question. There are some other questions I saw in here also about uh, Uber and Lyft. We're seeing more and more of those, especially here in New York City, uh, where Uber and Lyft are uh, a very popular method of use where people are in bad accidents as passengers or they're a pedestrian getting struck by an Uber or Lyft or a taxi uh, or all the above. Sometimes the, it's a yellow cab that at the time is being operated as a Lyft or an Uber. So ultimately it's gonna be fact-based. Uh, you're gonna to have to show that the Uber or Lyft uh, platform was in use. They're gonna say it was an independent contractor. Um, you're gonna say it's not. There's case law all over the country. My experience is that Uber and Lyft generally do not want to make law uh, and do motion practice on these cases, that if you can establish liability and you can establish that it was on one of their platforms when it happened, um, they'll generally work with you if you work up the liability part in your case. Otherwise, you're going to have to litigate that issue. And I encourage you to do so if they're not settling the case for what you think it is worth. But it is not an easy uh issue of law, the whole independent contractor agent issue. Sometimes they're, they're being used in a taxi cab and the taxi cab and that plate is covered by, you know, American Transit or one of the other taxi cab insurance coverages that we're all familiar with here in New York or elsewhere. And that becomes primary. Uh, and then there's an issue of whether or not uh, Lyft or Uber's coverage is excess or whether you still have to prove coverage uh, is even activated, uh, whether or not they have to have an independent uh, obligation to your client and you can have to establish negligence on them. So there's a lot involved. There's no short answer. The bottom line is um, if it's Uber or Lyft and or a taxi and or a private driver, you explore all of them. You serve them all with claim letters. You find out what the insurance coverage is for all of them. And if it's a really bad situation, a catastrophic injury case, you bring them all in and you, you fight, fight, fight until you get it sorted out. Um, great. Thank you. People are putting in different investigators in there. I encourage you all to explore that option. Uh, ah, interesting. Someone's saying the worst are Turo rental vehicles, T-U-R-O. They're like Airbnb for cars. I'm actually uh, using my first Turo rental uh, next month uh, when I'm away in Florida. So uh, you just have to make sure you can on Turo accept additional coverage. 
Um, what I always recommend with rentals and everything else is, you know, find out through your own insurance company what coverage they provide. Some will provide you with good coverage, certainly American Express, if you get a gold or platinum or one of those. Otherwise, find out from your own auto insurance if you can get additional coverage to cover you in rental vehicles. Just make sure you're covered. You don't want to rely on any rental company insurance coverage. And I, speaking of that, I did see a question in here of whether or not if there's a rental car involved in an accident, uh, and there is the Graves Amendment. Uh, research it if you've never heard of that. It is a federal law, Graves Law, which preempts liability and insulates rental companies from liability as a result of the negligence of the operator. So if John Doe rents an Avis and takes the basic coverage of 25,000 in New York and does not elect for additional coverage, and there's a catastrophic injury, don't get excited that it's an Avis rental car because you're not going to get the excess coverage. Uh, you are limited and they are insulated due to this preemptive law that went into effect. So it is not good. I had a case exactly like that. 25 coverage. We were stuck. It was a rental car at the time. And that's it. So be aware of rental cars because of the Graves Amendment. Uh, we're at 225. I'll take a few more if I can. Um Okay, so talking about the Turo contract, of course, look at rental contracts. I know most of us, uh, yours, inc yours included, uh, don't always review all of these because you need the car, you got to sign it, right? If you need to go somewhere or participate, you generally need to sign it. Many of you know I'm into driving uh, cars and doing high performance track events. And I laugh every time I pull up at the entrance to the track and they give me the clipboard and make me sign away everything. And this is after I've clicked all the boxes online. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to let me on the track unless I sign it. So you got to sign it. Then the issue is whether or not the waiver is valid. And that's a whole nother area that, uh, that I've lectured on and I'm happy to do so. Uh, the short answer is on a private racetrack, it is a valid waiver. If I flip my car and get killed, uh, I cannot sue them for the most part. Um, but if you're skiing in Vermont and uh, your lift ticket says that you release the resort from any injuries, that waiver is not valid. So it depends on the state. It depends on the activity you're engaged in. It depends on the language of the waiver. I talk a lot about this in the context of um, personal injury involved in uh, trainer, personal trainer accidents and gym cases, depending on the type of gym and the type of waiver. Some are valid and some aren't. So you're always going to want to look at the language and the law in your jurisdiction. Okay. Um, I think I've hit on everything. Um, Again, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to answer questions for those of you in the insurance field, the defense field. Look, I practiced plaintiff's law uh, my whole life. That's what I grew up in with my father. That's always what I've done. It's in my DNA. So I can't tell you necessarily how to defend a case, but I can tell you where I've seen mistakes uh, from the plaintiff's side. Because as you all know by now, I like to establish good rapport and good relationships with adversaries. And I can tell you that every single year, every single month, I have that initial conversation with the claims representative where I'm telling them about the case, I'm getting them the records, and I'm saying, look, do you want to try and resolve this early? They say, no, no, we, we don't see any liability on our part. Or no, no, this is a risk of the activity. Or no, no. And, you know, it's a mistake. It just point blank is. Uh, sometimes it's not, 
But 95% of the time, they end up paying a lot more after the litigation than earlier on in the litigation. So if I can give you one takeaway, look, I understand that defense firms and defense lawyers, you have clients, you bill based on the work that you do. Uh, Many times the client wants you to work up the file and get a lot of answers before they'll even consider settling. You have to do what your insurance company wants you to do. Uh, but I have a lot of friends who defend cases and they say their carriers now don't want them to just litigate. They don't want to drag out and delay a case. Uh, they want resolution. They want it fast. They want it off the books. They want early mediation. And I love when they reach out to me and I fully expect I have to give a discount on the settlement value because that's only fair. If they're going to step up and settle early, you can't expect to get the same value you're going to get after you've litigated the case for three years. So I would encourage you in any questions you have on the insurance or defense side that you want to run by me in or out of these seminars, please do so. Uh, I'm looking to better this profession. That's why I do all of these CLEs, uh, because I think that if we work collaboratively, we can all resolve our cases, move them uh, to the satisfaction of, of both of our clients. All right. So thank you all for joining me. Uh, check out the podcast. I just did one uh, that came out this week. Uh, I interviewed the founder of The Water Project. Many of you know that is dear uh, to my heart, uh, which is a, a charity that brings water to those in sub-Saharan Africa who've never even thought of the concept of turning on a tap and having clean water. So uh, it was really interesting to, to learn about that. The podcast, I have really interesting interviews in addition to these CLEs. And as always, I'm always happy to meet with you one-on-one. Just go to the Mentor ESQ and you could click on a link to meet me. Uh, there's no charge. It's just two of us hanging out, talking about anything and everything you want to talk about. I've been doing a lot of them over the last several months, and I've really enjoyed meeting all of you. And I thank you for participating. And if you're listening to the podcast, thank you so much. Please share it and like it with your friends. And I look forward to seeing all of you March 2nd. We're going to talk about the next steps you take in this case. And by the time you're done with this series, you too will be ready to handle a catastrophic automobile accident injury case. So let's do this bonus poll and then you can get out of here and have a great weekend. Thank you all.